0: Now, tonight, uh, I just love that song that that we sang, the second song uh, tonight. Uh, How many of you really believe what we were singing, that we have the same God? It's the same God Daniel had, right? And uh, Daniel had an amazing God. And sometimes we forget when we read all about what Daniel went through uh, that that's the same God we serve today. And so tonight we're going to be looking at really the key to understanding a Bible prophecy and, and, and really, you know, why, uh, why it all is coming together, how it's all coming together, the timing of when it's going to come uh, together. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn to Daniel, and we're going to kind of start broad and then zoom in to chapter 9. But by way of introduction, I want to talk about some famous uh, predictions You know, uh, there was a show called The Lone Gunman that was a spin-off of the popular X-Files series. And The Lone Gunman aired in 2001 on the Fox Network, and it featured characters from the original X-Files. And it basically revolved around uh, three characters that were a a trio of investigators that helped the FBI solve crimes and, um, uh, you know, helped FBI Special Agent Mulder, if you remember the X-Files, Uh, The spinoff first aired in March of 2001, and it ran for only 13 episodes. The first episode that year in March of 2001 was called Pilot, and it was about terrorists who hijacked commercial airliners and attempted to fly them into the World Trade Center towers. Again, this was March of 2001, six months before the terrorist attacks of 9-11, Now, what's interesting is in the aftermath of 9-11, several government leaders, including President George W. Bush, National Security Advisor Condi Rice, uh, even Secretary of State Colin Powell, all repeated the refrain, quote, no one could have ever predicted that terrorists would hijack commercial airliners and fly them into the World Trade Center. Well, apparently Bush and Rice and Powell didn't watch much television because the creators of The Lone Gunman certainly predicted it six months in advance. Well, this is by no means the only Hollywood prediction of this type. It's actually pretty common. Something shows up in a script first and then later occurs in real life. The Simpsons television shows famous for these kinds of storylines that have bizarre plot twists that become reality years later. For example, a 1993 episode of The Simpsons predicted the Siegfried and Roy tiger attack that came true 10 years later in 2003. The pandemic and the murder hornets that we all dealt with in 2020, remember that, the murder hornets? Well, that was predicted in 1993 as well in The Simpsons. A really interesting one, in 1995, the Shard Skyscraper in London appears in the episode. Only problem is that was 17 years before it was built in 2012. Well, the Donald Trump presidency was predicted 15 years ahead of time by The Simpsons, the faulty voting machines uh, were predicted in 08. Uh, all kinds of uh, predictions. There's a whole, you could write a book about all of the, the uh, Simpsons, pr- you know, uh, pre-programming and predictions. But it's not just Hollywood that's made some strangely accurate predictions on the screen. The publishing world contains uh, some similar prognostication. You all know about Aldous Huxley's groundbreaking 1931 novel, Brave New World. Well, in that book, the London government of 2540 makes sure that its citizens remain loyal by giving them Soma, it was called in the book, a legal drug that, quote, raised a quite impenetrable wall between the actual universe and their minds. In other words, it made them uh, content and unburdened by sadness and anger. He writes, eyes shone, cheeks were flushed, the inner light of universal benevolence broke out on every face in happy and friendly smiles. Well, if that sounds like modern antidepressants, you're not the only one to notice. The Journal of the American Physicians and Surgeons noted in 2016 that Huxley's novel, quote, set the stage for our love affair with mind-altering pharmaceuticals. Just months before the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995, A man by the name of Martin Keating, whose resume includes working for several government agencies, completed a novel called The Final Jihad. You can still get it on Amazon today. It was about a homegrown terrorist on American soil. And by the way, Martin Keating, if that name sounds familiar, that's because he was the brother of the newly installed governor of Oklahoma, Frank Keating, who was governor at the time of the tragic bombing of the Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City. But back to Martin's book, again, several months before the bombing that took place in 1995, in Martin Keating's book, it's all about, the plot line is all about a homegrown terrorist named Tom McVeigh, who blows up a federal building in Oklahoma City and is later captured when an Oklahoma State trooper pulls him over because he has a taillight out. Does that sound familiar? That's exactly what happened in the case of Timothy McVeigh in real life. Now, some might call these predictions coincidences. That's what the mainstream news said when it was pointed out to them that Martin Keating had written the script ahead of time. But when it comes to Daniel's stunning prophecies about Israel, some 600 years before Christ, it goes way beyond a mere coincidence. Tonight... We come to perhaps the most stunning prophecy, not about Israel, but about anything in the entire Bible. So stunning is Daniel's prophecy that most liberal critics today, all liberal critics and most critics today are liberals, sadly, in this great last days of deception, they deny that it was written by Daniel. They deny that it was written hundreds of years before Christ. They have to, because otherwise, more than anything else, it proves just what a mighty God we serve. And how every word in the Bible, cover to cover, line upon line, comes true exactly like God's Word says it does. Now before we dive into Daniel, let's cover some important ground theologically. We believe in literal interpretation. What does that mean? It just means that we we read the words and sentences of Scripture in their plain normal sense. The way words are intended to be understood. A literal interpretation means you don't spiritualize or allegorize the text. In other words, you don't look for hidden, deeper, mystical meanings. You don't read between the lines. God spoke to us through the written word, and He did it using grammar and syntax and literary content, and we are intended to understand it the way words are intended to be understood literal interpretation certainly understands that there's figurative language. The Bible is full of figures of speech. It's very common in every language to use figures of speech, but that doesn't mean we can't understand the Bible in its literary context. It doesn't mean we can't understand the nouns, the subjects, the verbs, and the, the grammar, and the historical context as well. Words have meaning in a historical context, and that meaning often changes from one generation to the next, and we need to understand what it meant in Daniel's day. When we talk about allegorical interpretation, what we're talking about is a failure to maintain this consistent literal approach to Scripture, especially in the prophetic portions of Scripture. You know, a lot of people today, like we talked about last night, that really have no interest in Bible prophecy, which is really Just sad to me, it's deeply saddening to me that in a day such as today when all the signs are pointing toward the soon coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the stage is being set like never before for the rise of the Antichrist and the one world political, religious and economic system. In a day like this, people nevertheless are shunning Bible prophecy. But yet, even though they're shunning Bible prophecy, the reality is when they read the Bible. And they come to passages in the Old Testament that talk about Christ's first advent at Bethlehem. Passages like Isaiah 7:14 that He was born of a virgin or would be born of a virgin 700 years before He came. Or Micah 5, 2, that He would be born in Bethlehem. Or Zechariah's famous prophecy of the forerunner, John the Baptist. They take all of those passages literally. Interesting how they do that, isn't it? Because they have no choice. It's quite obvious now after the fact that they came true literally. But for some reason when they shift to the passages in the Old Testament that deal with His return and the coming kingdom and all that the Bible has to say, that 16% of Bible prophecy that we talked about last night, they shift into an allegorical understanding of Scripture. Ezekiel's description in all of its magnificent glory of the Uh, millennial kingdom, the millennial temple that Christ will reign from, chapters 40 to 48, nine chapters in painstaking detail, they brush that all away as one giant metaphor. The passages that talk about the boundaries for Israel and the coming kingdom for Israel and the throne and the temple and all of that, all of that is allegorized. And consequently, it leads them to a blurring of the distinction between the church and Israel. And so we are a minority today. We are the remnant, if you will, those of us who believe there is a future for national Israel, like I'm going to be talking about tomorrow morning. God's not through with Israel. Like I talked about last night, one of the most profound signs, the most profound sign of the times in our day is the reestablishment of Israel in the land in 1948, showing that we're getting close. Uh, But they blur this distinction between Israel and the church. A proper understanding of Scripture understands that God has a purpose for Israel. For example... Uh, we read in, in Deuteronomy and Isaiah that Israel is intended to witness to the unity of Yahweh, Almighty God, the creator of the universe, that He is one. It's the, it's the Shema, he, uh, Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. One of the other purposes for Israel was to be an example to the pagan nations. They were to go across the Jordan, come into the promised land, and, and and be so on fire for the Lord, so obedient to the law that Moses had received, that all the surrounding pagan lands would come to them and say, what is going on? We want what you've got. Tell us about your God. Of course, we know they did just the opposite. They went in and capitulated to all the pagan gods, intermarried and and, and king after king, judge after judge, uh, they failed uh, in that day. Another purpose of Israel was to receive and record a scripture, obviously to produce a savior. Jesus himself says salvation is of the Jews. Uh, and it's to be center stage, and this gets to our purposes in this prophecy conference, in the end times and the coming kingdom. Israel will once again... Uh, Be center stage. Jesus Christ himself will reign and rule from that kingdom. But the Bible also has a purpose for the church. In this present age that we're living in today, we have a job to do. We are center stage. Israel has has exited, as it were, stage left. Paul says it's a period of blindness to Israel, but it's not permanent. They're not done. The play doesn't end with the church age. There's another act coming, and that's Israel coming back to center stage. But for now, God is calling out a people for his name. Acts chapter 15, verse 14, when James was speaking there at the Jerusalem council. We see he's showcasing the exceeding riches of God's grace and mercy today. I mean, grace has always been grace. God is, is, is an immutable God. All of his attributes are always true to the same degree at all times. It's not like God's more gracious today than he was in the Old Testament. But today he is manifesting that grace in a high definition. The greatest expression of God's amazing grace is at Calvary. When the eternal Son of God came, put on human flesh, was tempted in every way just as we were, or took your sins and my sins upon his shoulders, paid our sin debt on our behalf, paying a debt he didn't owe because we owed a debt we could never pay. He was sinless, yet he died a cruel death on the cross, rose again the third day defeating death, hell, and the grave, and offers to all, because He purchased it with His own blood, the gift of forgiveness, if we'll simply trust Him for it. Now, that's grace. That's an amazing picture of God's grace. Another purpose of the church that we read about in Romans 11 is to get Israel's attention. Well, that ought to knock us down a few notches. We're we're not the end-all, be-all of God's plan. One of the things God is doing through the church is to show Israel how they missed it the first time around, so that... The first time around, the vast majority of God's people cried, crucify him, crucify him, even though there was a remnant that cried, Hosanna, Hosanna. But the next time around, the nation as a whole, instead of crowning him with thorns, will receive their king and crown him as they rightfully should with a king's crown because they will see what it's like in in a foreshadowing, a foretaste, if you will, to know the Lord intimately like they will in the kingdom someday. Get this, God is showcasing his wisdom to the enemy, Satan, through the church. Which is one of the reasons, again, we know it's got to be getting close to the end of the church age because the church is failing miserably to do this. As Scripture prophesies, we are falling away. The church is largely apostate. But to the extent that we're walking in the Spirit, not after the flesh, to the extent that we're living for the Lord, representing his glory, winning others to Christ, staying in the Word fellowshipping with other believers, uh, running towards the roar of this, uh, the, the gates of hell, then we are showing Satan what his future is going to be like. We're showing him that God wins. And another purpose of the church is to prepare a body that will rule and reign with him in the kingdom someday. Allegorical interpretation also ignores the land promises to Israel. We're going to talk about that tomorrow. They don't think there is a future for geographic Israel. Now, the question that often comes to mind is how did we get from such clear, straightforward promises to Israel in the Old Testament to a day where the vast majority of Christians around the world have no use for Israel in their theology? They think the church is it, the church has replaced Israel, we are the kingdom, Christ's reign is metaphorical, he's reigning in our hearts and so forth, it's all a big spiritualized kingdom. How did we get... From what God promised Abraham 2,000 years before Christ to where we are today. Before we dive into Daniel's prophecy, I want to set the stage by showing you how this happened over time. So let's go back to Abraham's covenant. We'll talk more about this tomorrow. But God promised unconditionally that through Abraham all the nations of the world would be blessed. And Abraham's grandson uh, Jacob became Israel. And, and the 12 tribes of Israel. God reiterated some 500 years later uh, through the pen of Moses in Deuteronomy 30 uh, that the, the Israel would have a land just as it, He was promised uh, he promised to Abraham. We'll talk more about this tomorrow, but remember the Abrahamic covenant has three aspects, land, seed, and blessing. And so He reiterates the land promises. He reiterates that there's going to be a seed a thousand years before Christ, Second Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to 16. David has promised that he would have a son a descendant who would reign forever on the throne. That wasn't Solomon. And then we get to the promise of the New covenant from Jeremiah. And then we see going all the way to six to five BC, uh, Gabriel promises Mary that she's going to have a son. And Luke tells us that he would take the throne of his father David and he would reign forever and ever, the Christ child. And so Mary understood what that meant. She understood the promise to Abraham, to Father Abraham. She understood what Moses had wrote, had, had written in, in, in Deuteronomy. She understood the promise to King David. And so you can just imagine uh, how, uh, what she thought about all this. And then you see the, all of the early uh, hymns here, the, the uh, carols, if you will, Simeon's song. All of them, they understood that Messiah is coming, a Messiah is born. Now fast forward to the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. John the Baptist, what does he announce? The kingdom is at hand. Well, you can't have a kingdom without a king, right? And so the king had come. Jesus begins his ministry. He echoes the same thing. The kingdom is at hand. From an earthly perspective, had the first century Jewish leaders received her king and crowned him as king instead of crowning him with thorns? The kingdom would have been ushered right in. Now, we know that wasn't God's plan, and even the Old Testament predicts that, as we're going to see in Daniel. So then Jesus' three-and-a-half-year earthly ministry repeatedly he teaches about the kingdom. very first major sermon that he preaches is the Sermon on the Mount. It's all about the kingdom. And the Pharisees and scribes and all the legalistic leaders that were all self-righteous and thought that they were going to be first in line to get the kingdom... Jesus begins to chip away at them as he did for three and a half years, getting them to see how arrogant and self righteous they were. The whole point of the Sermon on the Mount is to explain that it's not self righteousness that matters, it's faith righteousness. It's not what you do that matters, it's what's in your heart. You can brag all day about never committing murder, but he said, Let me ask you, have you hated? (laughs) You can brag all day about never committing adultery, but have you lusted? Guess what? You're guilty. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew 5, 17, your your righteousness, and he's speaking to the crowds on the hillside, but by the end of the sermon and with Matthew's commentary at the very end, you get the clear understanding that Jesus was saying this for the purpose of those Pharisees who you can just picture standing in the outskirts behind the crowds, arms crossed, listening. Who does this guy think he is? And so Jesus says to the crowd, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you'll never get into the kingdom. Wow, you could almost hear the gasps in the crowd. Because though they understood the Pharisees lorded it over them, they still understood them to be the epitome of righteousness. They dotted their I's. They crossed their T's. They had the huge phylacteries. They, they let, made loud prayers. They clanged their money into the collection pot. And these people in the crowd must have thought, Wow, <clears throat> if we've got to be better than that, how in the world are we going to get in? But just to be clear... Lest anyone in the crowd that day thought, Okay, if that's what it takes, I'm just going to pull myself up by my bootstraps. I'm going to try harder, do more, be better, and I'll find a way to be better than them. Jesus really hits the nail on the head in Matthew 5.48 when he says, What I'm really telling you folks is, if you want to get into the kingdom of heaven, you've got to be what? Perfect. Perfect. Not 99% Perfect. You know, this isn't an SAT score. It doesn't matter what percentile you're in. There's no margin for error. It's not just about being better than the Pharisees. You've got to be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect. And then he goes on to explain at the end of the Sermon on the Mount that many are going to say in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not done all these things? But he's going to say, what? I never knew you. Because the righteousness that you had was self-righteousness. There are going to be a lot of moral people in hell someday. Because our own righteousness doesn't matter. God's not looking for people that are 99% righteous. He wants people that are perfect. And the only way to have the righteousness that heaven demands is to have it imputed to you by faith. And Abraham, the father of Israel, said, I believed in God and was declared righteous. He had that righteousness imputed to him, and we have to have it imputed the same way. And so Jesus begins by getting people to understand that after all these years, century after century, and especially after 400 years of of silent, no-writing prophets by the time the first century comes around, they'd really gotten off track. They had rewritten the law, come up with 613 footnotes, if you will, and everybody thought, as long as I dot my I's and cross my T's, I'm in. By the way, nothing's ever changed. Today, people still think the same thing. I can be good enough to get into heaven. And you can't be. That's why, Jesus, if you could be good enough to get into heaven, God didn't have to send Jesus to die in your place. He didn't die on the cross so you could, you know, finish it up. You know, he, He's not giving us a head start, and we said, Great, thanks, Lord, I'll take it from here. I'll put me over the final 5%. You know, we, we don't, I'm not a music leader, thankfully, but we don't sing Jesus paid most of it. Is that how the hymn goes? No, He paid it all, right? And so it's nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. By the way, Matthew 8, right after the Sermon on the Mount, the first thing Matthew records is Jesus' interaction with a Gentile, right? The centurion. And what does he say to that centurion? I have not seen such great faith even in Israel. I mean, he's really driving this point home that the people who think they're worthy are the ones who aren't worthy. And again and again you see this juxtaposition throughout Jesus' earthly ministry in all four Gospels, frankly, between the self-righteous, pious, unbelieving Jewish leaders and the humble, poor tax collectors, tax collectors harlots, the people who come and say, I'm not worthy. So that's the first step. If you think you're worthy, if you think you've got something of merit to give to a holy God, you're not, you know, that, that's not going to get you there. You've got to come to the point where I'm a sinner in desperate need of a Savior. I'm a dirty, rotten sinner who's you know, you know, estranged from a holy God, at enmity with God, and, and I need a Savior. And, 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 and that's what uh, the centurion did. But Jesus continues throughout his earthly ministry to talk about the timing and the nature of the kingdom. You get to Matthew 13, the so-called parables of the kingdom. What is he doing? He's not introducing a new form of the kingdom. You never find the word form in Matthew 13. He's not talking a mystery form of the kingdom. He's talking mysteries about the kingdom. What's a mystery? A mystery in Greek is the word mysterion. It means new information, previously unrevealed. God's giving new information. And that new information is this kingdom's going to start differently than you think it's going to start. It's going to start smaller. And he gives all these different uh, parables about the kingdom. Uh, when he predicts his death... He's talking about how um, suffering has to come before coronation, the cross before the crown, uh, you know, humility before honor. He begins to explain that. Uh, throughout His ministry, the disciples were obsessed with the kingdom. You get absolutely no hint anywhere in the Bible, which is really my point of going through this, that the disciples or anyone expected a figurative, spiritualized, metaphorical kingdom. I mean, look... On the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew 17, Peter was so psyched about the fact that Moses and Elijah were there and, and the glory of the Lord was shown that he said, it's here. The kingdom is here. He goes, let's just build some houses and, and inaugurate the kingdom right here. I mean, Forget about those nine other disciples at the bottom of the hill. Sorry, guys, the kingdom's up here. You didn't make it, right? He wanted the kingdom to start right then. Jesus told the disciples they would sit on 12 thrones with him in the kingdom. Anything in that text that indicates it's figurative or metaphorical or not real? Not at all. One of the disciples' moms wanted to know, can my son sit on your right and your left in the kingdom? Was she asking a figurative question? Absolutely not. She really meant it. She knew that Jesus had promised they would sit on 12 thrones, and she wanted Her sons to have preference. At the triumphal entry, we read in Luke 19 that the disciples thought the kingdom was going to happen immediately. The day before the triumphal entry, they're outside on the outskirts of Jerusalem. And Luke tells us under the inspiration of the Spirit that because they were near Jerusalem and they thought the kingdom was going to come immediately, Jesus told them the following parable. Then He tells them... The parable of the minas. What's the whole purpose of the minas? That look, I'm going to go away for a while to receive a kingdom. While I'm gone, you've got a job to do. Get busy. When I come back, I'm going to see how you did. And depending on how you did, that's going to determine what position of authority and service you have in my kingdom. <clears throat> uh, all in the, le- the days leading up to the cross, that final Passion Week, Jesus is repeatedly talking about the kingdom. And you get no hint that it's going to be a spiritualized kingdom. He really meant, I'm coming back. The disciples ask uh, after he uh, you know, has cursed the fig tree and then he talks about the temple. Remember, the disciples were so obsessed with the kingdom that after Jesus had that scathing love letter in Matthew 23 to the Pharisees when he called them things like vipers and you know, uh, hypocrites and whitewashed tombs, um, that's the Jesus we serve, by the way. It's not the same Jesus people think we serve today. He's a righteous judge as well as, a savior, as our Savior. But right after he did that, the disciples got kind of uneasy because Jesus said, you're not going to see me again to these Jewish leaders until you proclaim, bless is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then they, they think, man, this something's not adding up here. We thought he was going to ride into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, throw off the shackles of Rome and usher in the kingdom just like that. And a, f- a few days into it, this was, Wednesday, this was Wednesday morning uh, when he cursed the uh, fig tree and all of that. They're starting to say, wait a minute, something's, something's not right here. So they, they point, start pointing out to Jesus nervously, Lord, look at the temple. Isn't it beautiful? Isn't it wonderful? Look at all these wonderful things on the temple as if to say, it's going to be great when you take that throne away from Herod, you know. And so uh, Jesus, what does he say? Well, look, guys, you don't get it. Not one stone's going to be left upon another. Wow, now they're really blown away. How can you have a kingdom if there's no temple? And so Jesus, uh, you know, they say, well, Lord, when's this going to happen? What's the sign of your coming? And he tells the, the most comprehensive teaching on the end times in any one place in all the Bible. It's Jesus' Olivet Discourse, given the day before he was betrayed, one of the last things he left us with. You don't think end time stuff is important? <laughs> Within 24 hours, he would be betrayed in the garden. Within 36 hours, he'd be laid in a tomb. And here's what he says, you know. And he gives all the signs that we don't have time to go through the whole Olivet Discourse, but he gives all the signs that parallel perfectly with the sealed judgments in uh, Revelation. Uh, and he's explaining, this is what, this is when you know I'm going to be coming soon. All right. So now he's he's been crucified, laid in the tomb, resurrected appeared to thousands of people for 40 days. It's the day of ascension, Acts chapter 1. And the disciples are still asking about the kingdom. You still get no idea whatsoever that there's, this has all been a big head fake and it's really going to be a spiritualized, mystical kingdom, right? Because they come to him in Acts chapter 1, and, and it's almost like they're saying, okay, Lord, we get it now, we understand The cross had to come before the crown we get we didn't understand it what exactly what you were saying even though we should have during your earthly ministry but we get it now you know you're the atoning savior you've paid for our sins thank you for that by the way lord but now back to more important things when is the kingdom coming tell us and what does jesus say this would have been the perfect opportunity for jesus to say you silly disciples haven't you figured it out by now There's not going to be a literal earthly kingdom. I mean, it's all in your heart. It's all mystical. This is it. As soon as I'm gone, it's it. The kingdom is here. Enjoy. That would have been the perfect time to dispel the centuries-old idea of a literal brick-and-mortar earthly kingdom. But he didn't do that. In fact, he affirmed the literalness of the kingdom when he said, It's not for you to know the times or the seasons. But go back to Jerusalem. Be busy. and, And what do they do? They go back at the end of Acts chapter 1. What's the first order of business when they get to the upper room? To cast lots and replace Judas. Remember, Judas proved himself not to be a believer. And so they knew that Jesus had said, you're going to sit on 12 thrones. They didn't want that 12th throne to be empty. (laughs) So they said, we better hurry up because they thought he was going to go up to the right hand of the throne of God, grab the keys to the kingdom and come right back down. They had no idea. That's what he meant when he said, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. Times, chronos is a specific date. Seasons is, refers to the length of time. And so they didn't have any idea. And so you read through the early days of the church and you see this constant expectancy of the coming kingdom. Peter reoffers the kingdom in Acts chapter 3. He says, look, Israel, if you'll just realize that you crucified the Messiah and change your mind about who he is, repent. That's what repent means, change your mind. And believe in Him, times of refreshing will come. That's what he says in Acts 3. That's an Old Testament phrase that refers to the kingdom. All right, so let's look at the whole first century, the early church. early church continues to anticipate the kingdom. Paul clearly talks about a future for Israel in in Romans 11. He wrote Romans in 56, 57 A.D. And he says that that the deliverer is going to come out of Zion. You get to the end of the first century, the book of Revelation certainly predicts the return of Christ in beautiful, glorious, triumphant detail when He comes back to take the throne. Um, And then the early church, after the Bible was complete, second century A.D., you have tons of writings that talk about a literal earthly kingdom. They absolutely expected it. Then you get to the third century, Origin. Now, think about it. Now you're a couple hundred years removed from the time of Christ walking the earth. So in the immediate early days of the church, most of the people that became believers had known of Christ. They'd probably seen him, maybe listened to one of his hillside chats. But by the end of the first century, some of those were dying off. Certainly into the second century, they were all dying off. So now you had grandparents telling their grandchildren, look, my father walked and talked with this Jesus, and he promised he's coming back, and I'm here to tell you he's coming back. And they go, great, yes. Then they lived to a ripe old age. He still hadn't come back. And their enthusiasm with passing that on to their children begins to wane. And by the time you get to the 5th century A.D., when Augustine wrote his famous book, City of God, people had begun to lose hope. They, we must have misunderstood something. They're, we must have missed it. It's been hundreds of years. He hasn't come back yet. So uh, Augustine popularized this whole notion of a metaphorical kingdom. And then you enter the Dark Ages with Roman Catholicism, claiming that they're the kingdom and the Pope is the king. And, And for whatever, 1,500 years, you couldn't even read a Bible without being burned at the stake. So people just were beholden to the enemy in that sense. And so it's no surprise that by the time you get to the Reformation, most people on earth, thought they were living in the kingdom. There wasn't going to be a literal earthly kingdom. It was a metaphorical kingdom. But God's promises can be counted on. God never changed His mind. God never abandoned His promise. Our hope may have waned in the church history, but God's promises and plans never changed. And so when you have the onset of the printing press, the Reformation, and then people could start reading the Bible without getting killed, and they started reading it in the literal manner, as we just talked about a moment ago, they began to say, you know what, it sure sounds like Christ is coming back, and He's coming back to rule and reign, and He's going to reign in a temple that Ezekiel describes for nine chapters, and it's going to be an incredible, incredible kingdom. And so then you see a proliferation starting in the early 19th century to this present day of people writing, preaching, teaching about the return of the Lord. Not uh, in just some spiritualized sense, but a bodily return on the Mount of Olives to set up the temple precisely as the Bible tells us. And that brings us to Daniel's stunning prophecy. Uh, This really ought to settle all doubt about whether Christ is coming back. So Daniel wrote uh, roughly 6th century uh, B.C., So five to 600 years before Christ. Uh, The outline of Daniel is pretty simple. It centers around two visions that he has, a vision of God's program for the world and a vision of God's program for Israel. Chapter 1 is all about his personal integrity. But if you look at a chart of Daniel, we're not going to go through all this. It's in my chart book if you want to take a closer look at it. But the theme of Daniel is the most high rules in the kingdom of men. That's it. That's In a nutshell, that's a summary of what Daniel uh, teaches. And, you know, he walks through it, uh, and through Daniel 2 and 7, you see amazing, and again, these are all in the chart book that's out there on the table, but you see two amazing ways in which God communicates this through the pen of Daniel. One is a dream. This was Nebuchadnezzar's famous dream of the statue. And uh, he talks about the Babylonian Empire and the times of the Gentiles, followed by the Medo-Persian Empire, and then Greece, and then the Roman Empire, which would have two halves, the eastern and western half, with Constantinople in the east and Rome in the west. And then he speaks of a revival of that fourth kingdom in the end times that would be led by the Antichrist. And Daniel has a lot to say about the Antichrist. And so... I believe the end times revived Roman Empire is going to have five eastern nations, five western nations. We cannot speculate, I mean we can speculate, but we can't say with any certainty who those nations are going to be because we don't know when it's going to be implemented. And then you get to Daniel 7 and you see a reiteration of this same plan of the ages, these Gentile kingdoms that are going to rule Israel until the Messiah comes uh, through Daniel's dream. Remember Daniel has this bizarre dream including... Uh, The Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, Greece, and once again, the Roman Empire. And if you put these side by side, they tell a story of human history that has been stunningly true. Again, that's why a lot of people just can't accept the fact that Daniel wrote this in, you know, 606 B.C. Nobody knew the Persian Empire was going to take over, or the Grecian Empire, or certainly the Romans. That all happened after Daniel wrote, precisely as God I said it would. And so you get to chapter 9, and the question on the table is, after 70 years of captivity, so Daniel, as we read in chapter 9, he's, he's aware of the 70-year the prophecy to Jeremiah, that Israel will be in captivity to Babylon for 70 years, and he says, uh, what comes next? We, the clock is running out on that piece of the puzzle. We'd like to know what's next. And the, the real question that he asked, which is the same question we are asking today, is can God be trusted? Can you count on a God's word? So if you look at God's plan of the ages, you see we're living in the last days now. And this is why I get so animated and excited about studying the end times is because we're way closer than even the early first century or even the, the people in the days of the minor prophets Uh, You know, Daniel wrote 600 years before Christ about that seventh age to come, the kingdom age. So we're asking the same thing, except it's 2,000 years of waiting, not just 70, but can God be trusted? And so I want us to to spend the rest of our time tonight just looking at four verses, Daniel 9, 24 to 27. It's the 490-year prophecy that is absolutely the key to understanding The End Times. You've seen my End Times chart a lot over yesterday and today and we're going to be focusing on this seven year period that's called, as you see on the screen there, among other things, Daniel's 70th week. Daniel's 70th week. Why do we call it that? Well, because Daniel 9.24 begins this way. 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. Remember, Daniel had prayed to ask God what comes next. What can we expect? Give us the blueprint. Jeremiah did. Now we want to know what's next in your plan. And he says, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy, the Messiah, the son of David, going back to 2 Samuel 7, or all the way back to Abraham, the seed or all the way back to Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman that would ultimately defeat uh, Satan. So the key is this word weeks. Now, of course, we know the Bible was not written in English. The Old Testament in this portion was written in Hebrew, and its word weeks is the word Shabuah. Shabuah. And it, it's used 20 times in the Hebrew Old Testament. It, it, it's usually translated weeks, but it refers to a period of seven consecutive days or years, depending on the context. And the context is always quite clear. Daniel had been talking about years. He specifically referenced 70 years of Jeremiah's prophecy. And so God says, look, you want to know what comes next? I'm going to tell you not just the next 70 years. I'm going to tell you the next 70 years times seven. Very common phraseology in the Bible. And we know that Shabuah can mean seven years because, for example, in Genesis 29, the same exact Hebrew word is used, Shabuah, uh, to refer to the seven years that Jacob had to work For Laban in order to get Leah. He thought he was working for Rachel, and then, you know, Laban pulled the old switcheroo on him, and he ended up having to work another Shabuah to get Rachel. I mean, this guy was getting right and left with Shabuahs here. He had to work 14 years, right? Seven-year period, Shabuah, a seven-year period. So when he says seventy weeks, that's the English translation, what he means is. Seventy-seven-year periods. So if you do the math, 70 times 7, you're talking about 490 years. So that's why we call this Daniel's 490-year plan. Through Daniel, God unveiled a 490-year plan that will culminate in the kingdom, the long-awaited, thousand-year-old prophesied kingdom the great kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, when He rules with a rod of iron and perfect peace and righteousness and justice. So it's a 490-year plan. Now, note who this plan is with. It's for your people and your holy city. So God made this promise to Israel, His chosen nation. And as we're going to see, it's not quite done yet. This is why this is the key to understanding Bible prophecy. Note what this plan is going to accomplish. Six things he mentions here are going to be accomplished when the 490 years is done. When you get to the end of this phase of the plan, number one, uh, it will end all rebellion against God. There will be no more rebellion against God. Guess what? That's exactly what we see when we get to the kingdom age. Christ is on the throne ruling with a rod of iron. No more injustice, no more inequity, no more unfairness, no more accidental death. Uh, you can read my chapter in What Lies Ahead on the Millennial Reign of Christ and see all the characteristics of the millennium. The second thing is it will end human failure to obey God. There will be no more sin. It will end, put an end to human failure to obey God. Now, you probably don't have to worry about that here at North Star, right? You don't have any sinners in the church, do you? Wouldn't it be great if we didn't have to worry about sin anymore? Well, that's what's going to happen when this plan is done. Third, it's going to result in the ultimate and complete reconciliation of mankind when all is said and done. Those who have accepted the free gift of eternal life by faith will be part of God's family, will experience the culmination, their faith will become sight. Those who rejected the gospel, the good news, um, they'll spend eternity in the lake of fire. Fourth, it will inaugurate a new society in which righteousness prevails. Notice he says, to bring in everlasting righteousness now I mean this with all sincerity and not as snide as it might sound although it's hard not to be a little bit sarcastic and snide but to my friends who think we're living in the kingdom now let me ask you has this happened yet? I mean take a look around man just scan the globe look at all that everlasting righteousness everywhere you look right? isn't it beautiful? (laughs) hardly I don't know how you can say we're living in the kingdom now when, when Daniel says you're not going to get there till you, you see everlasting righteousness. It will also finalize and complete the vision that God has for the earth. When this plan's done, nothing more. There won't be people asking what comes next because we've arrived in the kingdom. And finally, it will result in the anointing of the most holy. That is, when, when Daniel's 490-year plan culminates It will mean the ushering in of the kingdom and the anointing of the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. When did Jesus say, by the way, that He would take the throne? Going back to that Olivet Discourse that I talked about a moment ago. Well, in Matthew 25, He very clearly said, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. He's not sitting on the throne today. He's sitting on a throne today. It's the throne at the right hand of God. It's called the throne in waiting. He's waiting for God to say, go get (laughs) them. But it's not the throne of His glory. It's not the kingdom throne. That's still coming. So back to the text. We've seen who the recipients of the prophecy were Israel, the purpose of the prophecy, and now God goes on to reveal the timeline. And this is really the crux of the matter. So what is this plan? God goes on to reveal first the first 483 years of that 490-year plan. And here's what he says. And I've highlighted in red on the screen the time markers. These are critical. Okay, We're going to see several of these, and then I'll chart it out for you. But he says, so here's what I'm about to say. Know, therefore, and understand. From, that's the first beginning of this 490-year plan, from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until... Messiah the Prince has come. That's Christ. There shall be, what? Seven weeks and 62 weeks. We have no idea. People have spilt all kinds of ink for centuries trying to figure out why God you know, broke up the first 69 weeks into 7 and 62. It's all speculation. I won't even take the time to, to give you my speculation. But the point is they go together. There's no gap between them. You have 69 Weeks and so basically, from A, the re, the command to restore the Jerusalem, until B, when Messiah the Prince has come, will be seven Shabuas or seven year periods and 62 Shabuas or 62 seven year periods. So you do the math, you get 69 seven year periods. Now let's do a little math, a little more math, dig a little deeper. So you've got seven weeks or Shabuas, that's 49 years plus 62 weeks, that's 434 years. You add 49 to 434, you come up with 483 years. So right here at the beginning, Daniel says from A to B is going to be 483 of these 490 years I'm telling you about. So from A to B, from the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah comes, there will be 69 seven-year periods, or in other words, 483 years. Now, how long was a year in Hebrew culture? It's 360 days, unmistakable. Uh, And that'll be important to remember in just a moment. So that's from A to B. And then notice the next time word is the word after that, after the 62 weeks, which is really after the 69, because remember it was 7 and 62 together. After the 62 weeks... Some things are going to happen. We'll call this C. Well, what's going to happen? Messiah is going to be cut off. Well, that's indeed what happened. After he came, guess what? He was crucified. And then also the prince who is to come, the people of the prince who is to come, that's Rome, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. That too happened in 70 A.D. Then we see our next time marker, verse 27. Then... So after these two things happen, Messiah being cut off and the prince uh, of the people to come uh, will destroy the temple. That's when Titus, the Roman general, rode into Jerusalem, destroyed the temple in the first century. Then he, this prince who is to come, the Antichrist, is going to confirm a covenant with many for one week. So we'll call this D. Notice we return to the one more week, one more Shabuah, one more seven-year period. So for this final seven-year period, there's going to be this Antichrist who signs a covenant. That starts the clock ticking. Uh, he's going to do the Abomination of Desolation, which Jesus quotes, by, quotes Daniel by name in Matthew 24 and refers to the same thing. And so then he says uh, he will confirm this covenant uh, in the middle, he's going to do the abomination of desolation. And then until, which is the final, the fifth time marker, until the consummation, till the end. Then it's over. The 490-year plan is over. So let me just simplify it for us here. Looking at those key words in Daniel 9, 24 to 27. A, we said was the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. That starts the clock ticking on 490 years until B, which is the coming of Messiah, C was the crucifixion and the destruction of Jerusalem, D was the confirmation of a treaty, Daniel 9.27, followed by the consummation of the kingdom and the most holy one being anointed as king of kings and lord of lords. Now Daniel tells us that from A to B is 483 years. And from D to E is seven years. He tells us nothing at all about how long this period of time between them is going to be but what I want you to notice is very important is that there is a undeniable gap of time between the end of the 483rd year and the start of that 484th year the text makes it unmistakably clear when does that final 7 year period start with the signing of the treaty between the Antichrist and Israel has that happened yet? Absolutely not so to to, to diagram it out this way we'll use those same time markers from A to B we said is going to be 483 years here's where Daniel's prophecy becomes that stunning prophecy that I told you it was we know for a fact that the decree occurred March 5th 444 B.C. there's a, a few people that think it was 445 B.C. it doesn't really change the point if you hold to that date but the best evidence is March 5th 444 B.C. And we read about that in Nehemiah 2. And we know that when the clock started ticking on that first 483 years, uh, that occurred March 5th, 444 B.C. We know that a Jewish year was 360 days per year. So if you simply do the math, uh, you, know, you, you come up with 173,880 days. Now, we've changed the, the dates on our calendar a couple of times since Daniel's day. But using today's time markers, if we start with March 5th, 444 B.C., and we count forward in simple math, 173,880 days, guess where we arrive on our calendar today? March 30th, 33 A.D., which is according to the best you know, research known to man by Harold Honor, who wrote, kind of wrote the book on all of this, was the exact date of Christ. Christ's triumphal entry. In other words, Daniel says, there's going to be a decree that's going to allow you to restore your people, and 173,880 days later, Messiah the Prince is going to come, and that's exactly what he did, riding on the back of a donkey to announce the kingdom. Uh, If you're interested, uh, you know, this is just the chronology of Christ's final weeks, just to put it in perspective. So he arrived at Bethany, March 28th. The triumphal entry was actually on a Monday, even though we celebrated in church history on a Sunday because it's easier to do that on a Sunday. And then the following Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. Uh, he cursed the fig tree, cleansed the temple. He gave the Olivet Discourse on Wednesday, as I said. He had the Upper Room a Discourse and the Passover with the disciples when he washed their feet on Thursday, April 2nd. This is all 33 AD. He was betrayed and arrested in, and tried hastily in a kangaroo court. Uh, laid in a tomb, uh, early Friday morning. He was in the tomb Friday through Sunday, resurrected on Sunday. By the way, we have in our free section of our online store, we have a document called Three Days and Three Nights where I explain without question that in the Hebrew culture, the phrase a day and a night referred to any part of any day and any part of any night. You see it in several places in the Old Testament. It's not like we use it in English. If I say You know, like if you take a cruise and it's seven days and seven nights, well, that better be, you know, seven full days and seven, or I'm asking for a refund, right? In Hebrew, it doesn't mean that. It's a Hebrew idiom, it's called, and it it means any part of any day counts as the whole day. And so people, based on our English translations of the Bible, when it says he was in the tomb three days and three nights, they have done all kinds of gymnastics with the dating, trying to say, well, Jesus must have died on a Tuesday or a Wednesday. Nope. 2,000 years of church history and the biblical text alike both confirm exactly what we know, and I make that case in that argument. You can download it for free, that he died on a Friday, was in the tomb on a Friday, a Saturday, and a Sunday, and praise God he resurrected on Sunday morning. And then he, uh, for 40 days, appeared to thousands of people, gave the Great Commission sometime in May, shortly before his ascension. He ascended on May 14th of that year. Then he, uh, we have 10 days later, the birthday of the church, uh, but the triumphal entry is what we're talking about right now, and that is March uh, 30th. So there you have it, 483 years to the day Christ's triumphal entry. But Daniel's prophecy didn't stop there, remember? We saw how after the uh, you know, 69th week, some other things happened. Namely, Messiah was cut off, and indeed He was just a few days later. And the temple was destroyed. And indeed it was a few years later in 70 A.D. And then the, the next time marker was that word then in Hebrew. Then the final seven year period is going to start when the Antichrist signs this treaty. And so you can see in blue on the screen there everything that relates to this prophecy for Israel, the 490 years. What's in green is that stuff that's in a gap of time that the text itself demands there is a gap of time. So between the 69th week and 70th week, or between the end of the 483rd year and the start of the 484th year, you have this gap of time. God, and as He revealed Scripture to us over time, remember the Bible was written over 1,500 years by 40 different human authors in three different languages, and as God progressively told us more information, we get to the New Testament, and guess what? We find out there's going to be something else that happens in that gap of time, and it's another mystery, something not revealed in the Old Testament, but now being revealed according to Ephesians, and that is uh, the church age. And so the church age fits perfectly with Daniel's prophecy. We don't know how long the church age is. It's been 2,000 years uh, so far, but it represents a parenthesis, if you will, in God's 490-year plan with Israel. But this can't be the kingdom because it would violate every plain normal sense of everything God promised in Daniel 9 or it would mean and this is what a lot of people try to get you to believe today well that seventh you know that final week that 70th week it all took place in the first century well i mean nothing like what we see described in both Jesus teachings when he refers to Daniel by name and quotes the abomination of desolation or what the book of revelation describes in chapter 6 to 18 took place in the first century that's nonsensical so we don't know when this final seven year period will come. We know that it will come after the rapture because the Bible promises us in 1 Thessalonians 1.10 and 1 Thessalonians 5.9 that we will not be here when the wrath of God is poured out during the tribulation. Uh, But right now we're living in this church age which as I said last night is called the last days. I think I mentioned that again tonight. The last days. I believe we're living in the last of the last days. We're getting close to the end of that Parenthesis And someday the Lord's going to call us to meet Him in the air. And then some things are going to unfold uh, in uh, that unspecified length of time after the rapture. See, the rapture puts an end to the church age. But the 70th week of Daniel does not start until the signing of that treaty that we talked about in Daniel 9.27. So you've got a necessary uh, gap of time. But at some point that treaty is going to be signed. And then we'll see not only the 70th week of Daniel culminating in the battle of Armageddon and the second coming of Christ, followed by ultimately the inauguration of the kingdom. And when you understand the plain normal sense of the text in this way, it really, it's not confusing at all. In fact, people all the time will tell me, oh, I don't read Revelation. It's too confusing. Revelation is the easiest book in all the Bible to outline. I mean, it's first three chapters are all about the first century church. Jesus gives seven literal letters to seven literal first century churches. And then chapters 4 and 5 answer the question, who is worthy to open the seals of God's wrath? It's what we call a theodicy, a justification for what's about to happen on earth. I mean, God, what gives you the right to pour out your wrath through the sealed trumpet and bold judgment? Well, I'll tell you what gives me the right, the Lamb. He is worthy. He shed his blood. And then having laid that foundation in chapters 4 and 5, the next chapter 6 all the way to chapter 19 are all about the tribulation. And you got all kinds of you know, supplemental information that comes in there, and the 144,000 Jewish witnesses, the two witnesses uh, in Revelation 11, uh, t- teachings about the beast, the Antichrist, and the, the other beast, the false prophet, Revelation 13. A mystery Babylon, how the Babylon system is going to be uh, going to reemerge again with the Antichrist at the helm of it. But all of that is leading us up to the triumphant return of Christ in chapter 20, chapter 19. And then chapter 20 comes after chapter 19. I know that sounds shocking. It's really pretty simple to me. I don't know how people can, can put the millennium before the second coming. And that's what they say. We're living in the kingdom today. Well, last time I checked, chapter 20 comes after chapter 19, but anyway, you have the millennium, which is the earthly phase of the kingdom on this old earth, followed by the destruction of the old earth, sold under sin, recreated in sinless perfection, and the eternal state in 21 and 22. So all of this starts uh, with the rapture and then takes us all the way through uh, to the end. So Daniel's stunning prophecy about Israel, you know, maybe the Creator's Uh, and the writers of The Simpsons are just incredibly lucky (laughs) maybe Martin Keating writing about a domestic terrorist named McVeigh who would blow up a federal building in Oklahoma City and be captured when his accomplices pulled over for having a broken taillight just several months before the actual events took place maybe it's just a bizarre coincidence right but one thing that is most definitely not a coincidence is God's prophetic word through Daniel So can God be trusted? Absolutely God can be trusted. I know it's been a long time. I mean, can you imagine in the early days of the church? I mean, we've gotten lazy. We've gotten bored. We've gotten lackadaisical. I mean, they were sitting on the edge of their seats every day. You know, know, the, the dads were saying to their kids, I walked with him, I talked with him, I sat under that tree as he promised he was coming back. Look up, be watchful, He's coming. And then generation after generation. But God is God. God has a plan. And He's the same God, like we sang about tonight, that Daniel served. I know it's been a long time. But maybe it helps to remember that the God we serve exists in the eternal now. He's outside of time, space, and matter. He doesn't think linear like we do. We think, boy, someday I hope... God judges all these evildoers of the world that seem to get by scot-free. And God's up there going, I mean, from my perspective, I'm watching them burn in the lake of fire. I'm watching them be judged for their sin because they refused to accept uh, the gift that I was offering them. It's a universal gift that's offered, by the way, uh, for everyone. Uh, Whosoever will, let him come drink of the water of life freely. That's the way the Bible ends in Revelation 22, uh, in that final chapter there. Uh, Jesus said, come unto me, all you who labor, and I'll give you rest. It's a universal, bona fide invitation. Anyone can be saved, anyone, if they'll simply receive the free gift. The Bible tells us, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. But for those of you here tonight, and I suspect that's most, if not all of us, that already know the Lord, we know God's Word can be trusted don't give up hope. Now more than ever we need to, to be watching and waiting. Seven times the Greek New Testament uses the word Opek dekamai." It means eagerly waiting. All seven times in the New Testament it refers to the rapture. That, that's, when it, that's what we're supposed to be doing. When's the last time you, know, you, you honestly thought maybe it could be today? We get so busy with the everyday routine of life that we we forget to stop and think well you know what? it could be today amen let's pray father thank you for this reminder from Daniel uh, that is often forgotten or pushed aside or neglected lord we confess our neglect of these uh, promises and pray that you would fill us anew with the hope of your return and when you come back to make all things new uh, lord we, we eagerly wait for that moment And we pray it in your son's precious name. Amen.